listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Lush, visceral, with a tart edge. Kristen Custer is a composer and an associate professor of composition at the University of Michigan. Coming and recent performances of her work include pieces written for the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, the Libsyn Summerfest Chamber Choir, and the multi-percussionist Joseph Gramley. Her new opera, Kept, A Ghost Story, will premiere at the Virginia Arts Festival in May 2017. Follow her on Twitter, at Kristen Custer. Kristen, nice to meet you. Andrea, always a pleasure. Nice to see you again. And nice to meet you. (laughs) So uh, this is a little bit different because we have kind of two adjective hosts. So Andrea, please feel free to jump in at any point, ask some the biting, hard-hitting questions, because as I understand, you guys have known each other for a long time. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. Almost 20 years or so. I know. I can't believe it's 20 years. <laughs> that sounds weird to say. It sounds like we should have known each other in elementary school, but no, we met in grad school. Yeah. <laughs> so it's been some time. And uh, was it immediate friends or? Yeah. Yeah. I think she saved my life. No. <laughs> <laughs> I met Andrea, I was here a year, so I was here doing my DMA at the University of Michigan, and she came and interviewed for her master's degree, and then when she was accepted, I remember thinking, oh my God, I gotta, I gotta talk to this girl when she gets here, because she seems so cool and so great, and her music was so great, and I just, I gotta talk to her, so I, I don't even know, in those days, I mean, this was 99? Yeah. In those days, it, we... I didn't even have a cell phone yet. No, I didn't either. And so, and there was no Facebook or Twitter or any of those things. So I'm not exactly sure how. Through P-Slack. Oh. I, I, I got her phone number <laughs> and I called, but you didn't have a cell phone. So, but somehow I left a message and said, hey, when you're done waiting tables at this restaurant that I knew she was waiting tables at, um, which was just up the road from my apartment, when you're done, I'm having people over, and if you want to come over, you like come hang out, and we'll we'll have mm-hmm. a good time, and it'll be great. Welcome to Michigan, etc. I, I like. How did you even get that message? I don't even know. Well, must have must have been. I mean, I lived in a house that probably had an answering machine, like a tape <laughs> answering machine. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and someone probably wrote it down. But I think I went and picked you up. You did, or Andy did. Okay. No one knows. The point is, know. somehow she ended up at my house for this this gathering that we had with you know a bunch of current students, and you know it was it was uh, it was just immediate, you know, because she's amazing and clever and quick, and I have a hard time connecting with people who aren't quick. Mm-hmm. So I also have a very hard time connecting with people who have no sense of irony. <laughs> So, I, I mean, it's just really, it's tough for me. You know, I keep thinking, like, have some irony pills or, you know, like, a, you know, cast irony skillet. Make your eggs in that. And I use cast irony every day. She does. She uses a lot of cast irony. So it was just, we just immediately hit it off. And it was great. And it's been great ever since. Yeah. And we've, we've been who sell, through life. Who sells cast irony? I don't know. There's, there has to be a famous I feel like maker. probably Lowe's. Yeah. Is that a Bed Bath & Beyond? No, 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 no. You got to go hardcore, man. Not Bed Bath & Beyond. No. no. Not even in the beyond. No. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so 
So I want to I want to start by talking about your piece, uh, White Hurricane, nineteen thirteen. And uh, I did. Uh, first of all, I want to say I love your website. Oh, thank um, you. Did you did you do your website, or did is that someone else? Or I did not. Allison Connard did my website. And she's a she's just a web designer because it looks really yeah. good, and I love it. Thank so. you. And my my husband Bill Lucas, who is a trumpet player with the Detroit Symphony, took all the pictures. Mm. Yeah, yeah. That's that's always the thing that you need for a web. You just need content for a website, and it's like, uh, yeah, I'm I'm in the I'm in the point where I want to redesign my website, and I'm just thinking about, oh god, that's that just sounds like murder at this yeah. point. Yeah, I know. So I'm really. I'm I'm really thinking about trying, just hiring someone to do it. She's because... great. Lena, look her up. It's Allison with one L, A L I S O N Connard, C O N A R D. And she's done a lot of artist and composer websites. And what I what I really liked about her was um, you can do it one of two ways: that you can hire her to set the whole thing up and enter all of the content and do all the things, or like so all the text that you see. I actually entered myself because it was mm-hmm. like a third of the price. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I now have all the codes and everything to go in and, and update it as, as I can, which do you update. Yeah. Well, well, which I should do more of. I haven't like the events are slow and so forth. Like I haven't done that in a while, but yeah, I, I mean, I just looked at all of her work and I looked at everything that she had done for a couple of my students and I just thought it was fabulous. So yeah. Well, the whole point of that was to say that I couldn't find anything about this piece on your website. I know, I know, because the, that disc, the the recording that I gave you was just released literally okay. months ago. All right. So, so I kind of like uh, did a little research uh, and uh, found out that <laughs> this is about this is about a blizzard yeah. that happened uh-huh. in the Great Lakes uh-huh. in 1913. So, uh, how did you kind of how did you learn about this, and why did you? want to treat it musically. Jerry Blackstone, who was our director of choirs here at University of Michigan, commissioned me for this piece and he said what we really want is something that's, you know, reflects Michigan and he said when I think of Michigan, I think of just water, just tons and tons mm. of water, tons of mm-hmm. weather and and all the things. And so um my poet Megan Levod and I, I mean, she and I have done a bunch of pieces together. In fact, we have an opera that's premiering in May. Um, I, I spoke with her, and, and <laughs> she did some research, and I did some research, and we just found this incredible storm in 1913 that I think left even Cleveland all the way down south right. without power and resources for you know almost a month. And yeah, it was something like 250 people died or something. They it was crazy. did. I know because ships capsized, and it was it was sort of a freak, uh, just gale of of mm-hmm. weather that came in, and they were completely unprepared for it. So mm-hmm. what I love about Megan's lyrics in this piece is that it's a it's about how the shipping industry, the logging industry, was still in full swing in, in those days, and how vulnerable everything was. And so the second movement in particular is one of my favorite because it um, it sort of reflects this this sort of eerie, weird stillness that happens mm-hmm. with not only post-storm situations, but when there's ice covering everything. Yeah. And in this storm in particular, I mean, there were 
there were dead bodies they had to pull out of these icy waters. And I know, right? I see your face. I know. Yeah, that's... <laughs> that's it's a little gross. But, <laughs> but, it's, but it's a thing. I mean, it's a real yeah, thing. But it's... Yeah. And at the very end, there's this line of the second movement that says, clouds parted and long ships traveled. You know, at the end of the day, they all went on with their work. It's beautiful. Yeah. I actually have a piece for, with, with text that's also about a, um, a you know, a, a tsunami, actually. But, you know, and uh, it seems like tragedy is always, is always a very fertile place for composers to go to. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I for me, I can't speak for everybody else, but for me, I, I got into this business because I want to move people. I got into mm-hmm. this because when I was a little kid and I started playing piano and I was hearing music, I was just super moved by it. And, I mean, what's, what's more of a feeling than losing somebody that you love? And mm-hmm. at the same time, I mean, I've had a lot of people that I love die, and that has informed much of my music. I mean, we're all going to die at some point. And Megan and I have this kind of running joke, which is that every piece that we write together um, turns to death, <laughs> which is which is actually true, except for one piece. I mean, like people yeah. people die in all of our pieces, and so. Um, but but that's the thing, you know. I mean, we're all mortal. We are all. Um, Sorry, my my trumpet husband just walked in. Hi, babe. Okay, thanks. Don't let's not. We don't need any high G's from you right now. Stay within the staff, honey. Okay, he's talking to squirrels now. Anyway, um, tragedy is uh, something we all feel. It's a. It's I think a universal feeling, and I think we can express that in a way that can be sincere without being egregiously self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. And that's my goal. I always find that there's lots of joy in your music too, despite the, the tragedy. Um, and so even if there's a, a especially poignant moment, something turns and there's like a, a bright sun, beam of sunshine that comes into the middle of it. And so that's what I've just always loved about your music. Thank yeah. you. Because I think all those feelings coexist. We have, yeah. we have all these things simultaneously. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it feel, it's sort of like when they talk about multitasking. In fact, Andrea's husband has a, has a great comment about this, this sort of bullshit that is the notion of multitasking, which is we're mm-hmm. not actually multitasking. We're going from one thing to back and forth or one thing right. to the next, to the next, to the next. We're not actually doing two things at once. But I think with feelings, um, we can actually have them simultaneously. We can joyfully mm-hmm. cry. We can um, painfully laugh. These things can exist. But because we're dealing with music and it happens over time, I tend to kind of uh, split those things into sections. Mm-hmm. So they may overlap a little bit, but for the most part, we're either being happy or we're being sad. Are you referencing any other styles of song in this in this piece? The the final movement kind of it kind of traversed a few different impressions for me. So I was wondering if there was anything that you were specifically referencing. I want to know what you mean by that <laughs> before I answer. 
the very beginning of the third movement, and I know this is probably informed by the research I did, knowing that it was about a storm that a lot of people died and most of those people were on ships. Mm -hmm. But the third movement did kind of have this like, in a weird postmodern way, like a sea shanty type of feel for me. Ah, okay. That's interesting. I would put the first movement more sea shanty bit okay um and the last movement i mean it's it's kind of poppy in a way mm-hmm. so when you say reference when you say reference i mean i don't purposely reference anything to my knowledge mm-hmm. okay but i also believe that we're influenced by all the stuff that we hear whether we know it or not whether we like it or not sure and i say this in interviews all the time that like you know michael jackson is in my music early early michael jackson <laughs> thriller in particular um Right. And lots of, yeah, and lots of early... Not, sort of not We Are the World or uh, the <laughs> Free Willy soundtrack? No, no. <laughs> Quincy Jones, you know, all that. I mean, like, that, that's yeah. just an amazing, it's an amazing record. Um, so this, this kind of, um, in fact, I think the score even says something almost pop slash folk-like. So what I wanted mm-hmm. for that last movement is something that's less sort of trained... I'm an opera singer kind of singing. Right, and that definitely that definitely came through in the performance. Yeah, yeah, good, good, I'm glad. And I think, um, because, you know, he says, a lull, a lull, a lull, where long ships, ships traveled. You know, it's kind of like he's a member of the ship. Like, he's a member of this team that, that watched all this stuff go down. The murmuring, murmuring gray. God, that's a great line. Megan is so good. Yeah. That's a great line. So I, I repeat it over and over again because it's great. <laughs> so How about you, I mean, you said that you've worked on a bunch of other pieces with, with your poet. Are you, do you kind of only specifically use one poet? Uh, so far, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, yeah. she's just, yeah, she's just too. so amazing. Yeah. She's amazing. And what's really funny is that she and I met because when I started back on the Michigan, Michigan faculty in the fall of 08, they needed an emergency fill-in for a student's dissertation defense. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not sure what happened. They just, a faculty member had to back out at the last minute. So I, I served on this defense committee and it just so happened that Megan had written the poetry for this particular student. And I loved it. And this was in like October or something. And then I ran into her at the Ann Arbor Art Fair in July, you know, a full sort of season later, and she was walking around everything, and I quoted her poem back to her that I had remembered from this student's piece. I was like, that was amazing, and she was like, we should drink, and I said, okay. (laughs) Yeah, we started this relationship, and it's just, it's been great ever since. I love that that's where it went because it's like, no, oh, we should talk. Oh, we should no. meet. We should drink. <laughs> you bet. Well, you know, that's she's a great. poet. I'm a composer. That's what we do. Yeah. So we've had that's lots right. and lots that's and lots of happy hours over the years. And um, she's, she's just magical. Her, what I love mm-hmm. about her poetry is, and for everyone who's listening, I'm going to remind you, this is Megan Levad, L-E-V-A-D. You should check her out. She has a book called Why We Live in the Dark Ages that is brilliant and strange and wonderful. She has a new book coming out, um, I think, in September. And what I love about her writing 
and and her as a person is that she can be all these kinds of um, beautifully descriptive things in a kind of romantic, for lack of a better word, kind of flowery sort of language. But then it's got this real Mm -hmm. edge to it. It's got this real, like, modern severity to it that is is just so compelling. She's just brilliant. She's brilliant. And I, ah, it's sort of like I want to tell every composer to work with her, and also I want to keep her to myself. You want to keep her yeah, to I yourself, do. exactly. I'm a, I'm, a little, I'm a little selfish. I'm a little selfish with her. But also, I also want everyone to use her because she's just so good. You know, she's too mm-hmm. good not to share. Yeah, I have I have a similar relationship with a poet where she and I have worked together for everything I've ever done with text except my very first thing, which is why I used Sylvia Plath poetry and then found out the legality of the, the yeah, legal nightmare that, that how'd is that work out Plath. for you? <laughs> well, it's only been done twice and it's not allowed to be ever done again. So There you go. <laughs> anyway, but I have I have a poet that I work with too and it's I have the same thing. It's like, you know, you want people to read her stuff, but like, ah, she she and I work together. Like, you know, but, but this, a couple other composers have said her that have found out about her through me. But yeah. And you know what? I yeah, think you that's do amazing. feel a little possessive. I, I do. But at the same time, I feel like the more and I, I encourage all of my students to I mean, look, the MFA poetry and creative writing program at the University of Michigan is one of the top in the country. So. I encourage all mm-hmm. my students to just get over there and meet these living people because, yes. you know, you can look for a ton of stuff that's out of copyright and the best of it has been set a hundred times. Yeah. A lot. Yeah. Yes. A lot. Oh my God. Everyone has an Emily Dickinson right. cycle. Everyone has, you know, right. Yeah. And, uh, and I'm, I'm just so like, it, it's, it's so much better to have that, relationship with the person like you said like let's go get drinks let's go get happy hour let's mm-hmm. talk about things and then you can create something together instead of this one-way relationship of i set your text you're dead you don't care well right and then it's a symbiotic relationship within the the art that you're making mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i mean look everybody can set rilke Lorca, rumi you know however many poets they want to look at but if you can create something new and you can say to to your poet, hey, I'm I'm really having trouble setting the word refrigerator. <laughs> you know, <Yes. laughs> or can we change this from present tense to past tense? Or can we change this from him to her? You know, it's just really everybody's sort of got their their fingers in the dough a lot more, and that I think is just way more compelling. So, who are we going to hear on this recording that just came out? Oh, this is the University of Michigan Chamber Choir, conducted by Jerry Blackstone. And it's awesome. You should check it out. It's a lot of good new music. Can you, can you, you can find it through like iTunes or something? Yes, it's on a University of Michigan chamber choir with Jerry Blackstone on a CD with the title track White Hurricane with um, nice. pieces. Thank you. Yeah. Pieces by me, Brahms, William Billings, Josquin, Daniel Nags, Greg Simon, Eric's Ensvalds, and a couple of arrangements couple of spiritual arrangements. So it's great. Yes, it's on iTunes, and you can also buy it in hard copy.
So, Andrea, you were going to say the words mm. of music class. Oh, yeah. So when we were students, um, there was a class taught by William Bolcom and Richard Tillinghast, who is a poet, and it was the class was for composers and poets to work together to learn to collaborate on things. And so we wrote four songs, five songs? Six. Six songs. Mm-hmm. And we had a little concert in Carytown at the end of the semester, and um, it, was, it was really great. And we, so we met a lot of super talented poets through through that class too and you've collaborated with Manu and yeah some others from that yeah I wrote a few a few songs and my dissertation actually with Manu Chander who is great just a great poet and I mean he's just a lovely guy and um it's you know that was such a great class because we learned about you know what the poets are thinking what we're thinking what reads on the page better than what sings and there's, I mean, there's just mm-hmm. no yeah. better person to learn that from than than Bill Bolcom. Yeah, he's an absolute mm-hmm. master of the language. And um, in fact, we got to meet Arnold Weinstein, his longtime collaborator, who I think passed away soon thereafter. Mm-hmm. And it was just, you know, just magical. I mean, these these two sort of legends of their fields who had had mm-hmm. this this lifetime collaboration and many works that they did together. And um, I think that most of all, that class taught me how to talk with poets. Yes. So mm-hmm. sort of as though uh, like a film composer would learn to talk with a director about what sure. they want. Um, and and to, to sort of deal with things like, you know, even contractions don't versus do not you know what what mm-hmm. what and also homonyms ho- yeah oh yeah homonyms were a big thing yeah. yeah but also i mean with all due respect it doesn't matter what the music is doing if we don't know what the fuck's happening yes right if we don't know what the message is <laughs> exactly. if we don't know what the message is if we don't know what this thing is about the music can do whatever it wants to do and no one's going to give a shit so like we yeah. you got to be simultaneously clear i mean when you're in school you're you're trying to be fancy. You're trying to be intelligent, and you're trying to be cool, and you're trying to do things that are interesting. But uh, Bolkin would say, "Well, this is really great, but I have no idea what it's about. Yeah. I have no <laughs> idea what this means. Uh, it, it sounds great, but but what are you talking about?" So that right. I think is really an invaluable lesson. So I want to switch gears to your next piece here, mm. leaving, and this is a piece for solo cello. Two violins, viola, contrabass, and marimba. So we're moving from one piece, White Hurricane, that is about kind of widespread tragedy to this piece here, Leaving, that's one of more personal tragedy. So can you kind of give us the story behind this piece? Sure. So in a way, it's tragic, but in a way, it's not. So my father passed away in February of 2010 of prostate cancer, and he had been diagnosed with that cancer, um, gosh, I think it was 97. So, wow. so he had been battling this disease for a good long while. Mm-hmm. And he actually had quite, in, in cancer terms, he had a very long time. However... Even though um, my mother had already passed away from a different kind of cancer um, about 11 years beforehand or nine years beforehand, um, 
it's still, you know, it's always a shock. It's a shock when your parents sure. die. And and he was 69 years old, and this piece was due. So um, Harold Meltzer of Sequitur, which is a New York-based chamber group, had called me in the fall and said, hey, do you have any pieces we can do? And I said, well, wouldn't you like a new piece? And he said, well, sure. So it was due like a month after my dad passed away. And because he had, right after my phone call with Harold, had my, my dad had started to descend very quickly, health-wise. Um, you know, I hadn't really gotten to the piece. And so after he died, the piece was due in like a month and a half. And I started it on the plane mm-hmm. when I left him. And I, this is one of these weird pieces that I just wrote completely on autopilot. You know, we we... We do this as composers. We get into this kind of haze of, you know, life is happening, things are happening, and we got to turn out this this thing that's our job. That we we signed a gig, we we signed a contract for a gig, so you got to make this thing happen. And what's really weird for me now when I listen to this piece is that I barely remember choosing any of these notes. I really? barely remember. Yeah, I barely remember writing it, and yet it's. I think the my piece I'm most proud of. I love it the most. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, um, my dad was a scientist. He was a meteorologist for the government, for NOAA. Mm -hmm. He, in 1959, wrote his dissertation on what was then called urban pollution, which we now call climate change, which (laughs) he, yeah, yeah, he was. What year was that? This is. 1959. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he really was um, on the cutting edge of all of the technology and the and the science that the government and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association uses to look at the changes in the fluctuation of the hull in the ozone. Yeah. So he had known for years this stuff was, was happening, and he was just passionate about weather. I mean, I have memories of him uh, coming to see me in, in California when I was living in California, um, and we were at a hotel and we were watching the fog roll in mm-hmm. off the beach like at like like 40 cats just slowly yeah i mean and just enveloping us and him describing to me what what is happening with the moisture and the air and why chemically this is happening and you know he just was delighted by clouds and thunder and um and all the weather so so Although there's not a lot of weather <laughs> reflected in this piece, there is, um, I think, just a, a sense of real love and um, strain and sadness and also release.
for me, there's a section in this piece that starts around six and a half minutes. Hmm. And um, it's, I think the higher violins are maybe doing something. If it's not aleatoric, it kind of sounds like it. They're just kind of playing around with a few notes, you know? And then the cello and the bass like come in with these mm -hmm. uh, kind of harmonic structures. And I got to say, it just tears at me. Like, oh. it reminds, like it reminds me of the feeling I had when I was listening to the piece that made me want to devote my life to composition. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So it just it, it just reminds me of that feeling. So it was really I I like this piece a lot too. So thank you. I will tell you that moment I wrote first. And but I knew that it would be way more poignant if there was like stuff before it. Yeah, you, we really need we really need to get to to kind of live with the world enough mm -hmm. to be able to accept that as like the emotional kind of climax, or at least that's what it was for me. Thank you. Yeah, and I and I will say also that um, those those violins sort of quote as you said playing around with some of those notes up above. Um, that's all written out very specifically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's all very, very detailed notation as to exactly when they turn those phrases, exactly when they do, do those grace notes. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit over anal in that way in that um, mm -hmm. I rarely use aleatory and improvisation in my music because, I don't know, maybe – Maybe it's a control issue. <laughs> Maybe it's, it, it could either be a control issue or a trust issue. Or right. it could yeah. also be that I have zero improvisation training in, uh -huh. my, in my history, which is actually my biggest educational regret. I, I wish that I would have had early piano teachers and, um, uh, you know, my formative teachers encouraging me to improvise more as a pianist. Um, I mean, you know, composing, I compose a lot of the piano and that essentially is improvisation. However, mm -hmm. um, the notion of learning how to improvise over different harmonies and things would have been so, so useful. And if whoever's listening, if you have youngsters that are studying any instrument, tell their teachers, please force them to incorporate improvisation into their lessons because those youngsters will, they'll, they'll, they'll learn better, their ears, ears will expand, and also they may then become composers, mm -hmm. you know? So, but, but all that stuff in that, that bit of here leaving that we're talking about um, is all written out. So I'm kind of interrupting right now because you will notice that after, after this, the mood dramatically changes, and it's because... Uh, Kristen and Andrea and I had a pretty lengthy discussion about uh, me moving back to America and the election and the state of affairs in America right now. And we got to a pretty giggly place, uh, but uh, we never left ourselves a good transition point. So since there's no good way to transition, I'll just take this moment to say, if you like what you hear on Lexical Tones, go to iTunes, give us a rating, give us a review, make sure to subscribe, tell your friends about us. Really helps us out. And we're back in. What's the third piece we're going to be talking about? Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about two jades for solo violin and wind ensemble. Boom. 
Boom. What are the two jades? <laughs> what are the two jades? Let's just start there. Okay, so our symphony band had been engaged to do a, a tour of China. And in so doing, Michael Haithcock, our symphony band conductor, commissioned myself and Bill Bolcom and Michael Doherty and Bright Shang, all faculty members, to write pieces for this tour. And so I went to our museum. We have an amazing art museum here in Ann Arbor. It's, it's incredible. It's the, called the University of Michigan Museum of Art. And they have this wonderful wing of Chinese artifacts. And something that I saw were these two pieces of jade, which are a disc that is circular that has a hole in the middle of it. And the other one is square that also has a circular hole in it. And these these objects are, I mean, they're they're amazing. They're beautiful. They have this contrast in color and shading and shape. I mean, they're they're about as big as my hand. Mm-hmm. Um and I thought, okay, well, so this is something. And also, Michael Haithcock had asked me to write a piece for violin and band. So I thought there's this duality between, you know, a string instrument <laughs> and a bunch of everything else not string instruments. Right. And yeah. how can this how can this kind of work? So um I also thought, you know, we've got all these students. I mean, my the instrumentation of the pieces is, is pretty big. It's huge, actually. It's it's almost the entire band. And how can I give all of them something to do in this piece? I mean, they're going on tour, right. they should all have something to do. So it was a really daunting task to write something where I mean it's I almost faced something was felt nearly impossible. So these huge number of forces of very loud instruments mm-hmm. sort of against this violin. So what I decided to do was not treat them as antagonistic, treat them as though they're having a conversation and also a simultaneous party with one another. Mm-hmm. And um, it turned out great. And they, they did a great job. And Zhang Gao, our, our violin soloist, was just gangbusters. I mean, he's amazing. He was, he was incredible. Yeah, yeah. That, that I mean, yeah, he's he's pretty pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good <laughs> I think he does okay. Yeah. <laughs> so you were talking about uh kind of duality between the between the violin and the band, and that just reading your notes, it seems like that duality kind of made its way into the 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 general concept of the piece in a in a bigger way, right? Uh, can you say more about that? What do you mean? Well, you were talking about duality in terms of you know the 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 two the two jades are different shapes. So you have, and, and then I I remember something about like uh like earth and air or life and death or or these these kind of topics that made their way into the piece. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, I mean, the piece basically is in three sections: fast, slow, fast. And so it's it's a little bit absurd to have this <laughs> this string instrument that is generally, you know, as a soloist, fairly quiet in relationship to a mm-hmm. band. And so what I wanted to do was weave them together and try and create this sort of um, the, the coexist, coexistence 
and a symbiotic relationship in which something like a duality of life and death can be experienced by everybody. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like what we were talking about with the last piece, that we can have all these feelings simultaneously, and we can right. have all these sounds simultaneously, and we can all be with, I mean, <laughs> in this case, yeah, we, yes, we can all be heard. We can all be sort of respectful of one another and support mm-hmm. one another. And so that I leave a huge hole in the frequency spectrum anytime the, the violin is playing with anybody right. else. And that's really important, not only for, you know, acoustics and just being able to hear the soloist, but also the pieces about the soloist. The pieces about right. the violin playing in this, you know, this context that it usually does not. And so, mm-hmm. therefore, um, you know, I wanted to give him really fun licks, really fun stuff that is supported by the band, but also that he's like a leader of the party, you know. Mm-hmm. And by party, I mean celebration, not, you know, political or otherwise. That <laughs> 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 he's, 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 you know, making these, he's a host. He's sort of the host of the party as opposed right. to, a typical concerto situation where there, there's like, you know, soloist against ensemble and, and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. There, there's a sound that I want to ask you what it is right <laughs> after the cadenza. It's a long metallic sound. Yeah. It's a, yeah. it's awesome. I have to say, you're I, not going to say, no, I'll tell you. I love it. I love it so, so, so much. It's seven triangles. So, whoa! I did not. I did not get that. That's seven triangles all like uh, uh, being rolled at the same time. Yeah. But wow. they all okay. enter at different times, and they all have a dovetail of dynamics from Niente. Just to, uh-huh. I, 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 I would have to look at the score, but I, I don't think it's forte. I think it's maybe even mezzo piano. Uh-huh. And then decrescendoing out to niente, and they all, that all happens at different times. So, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's what you're talking about. Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, well, I, I, I think so, I think because so. it was like, it's this like long, drawn out metallic sound right at the tail end of the, uh, of the cadenza. And that moment was just magic for me because it sounded, I was actually going to ask you, did you use electronics in this piece? Because it sounds like it it has been electronically produced or electronically altered. That's incredible. Thank you. And I have to give credit to our percussion professor, Joseph Gramley, here at the University of Mm -hmm. Michigan, who is a dear friend of mine. And I'm sorry I'm not going to be able to quote exactly what he said but I had written a percussion quartet that um, had a similar sound at the end of it with just four triangles. Mm-hmm. And he said it sounded like so-and-so, and I'm so sorry, I can't remember who that was, but um, he said, yeah, imagine what that, what that would be doubled. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I totally can. Yeah, I'm on it. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's incredible. Well, and so. what's, what's tricky with that lick, though, is actually the mallets that they use. Yeah, it it's, doesn't sound like it's normal triangle beaters. It sounds like it's something maybe softer. Exactly. And they have to be because otherwise it sounds like a dinner bell. Yeah. And then you yeah. hear the actual like you hear the actual rhythm. No, no, no. No, no. Yeah. 
Yeah. It, re- it really sounds like it sounded like you had recorded one piece of metal and then just like stretched uh, like flex time stretched it out in the computer or something. It was there's no computers in that piece <laughs> to know that that's acoustic. That just makes it even better. Like get a pile of triangles, man. They're amazing. <laughs> Every time you can't go wrong with more than four. Yeah. Four triangles. Right. Yeah. Thank you. 
Andrea, did you have did you have anything? Oh, I love the piece, but um, let's see. I I remember talking about this piece a lot with Christy when she was writing it, and mm. um, just that I remember that you were so careful, like you were really cognizant of that acoustic hole for the violinist. <laughs> Sorry, you're gonna have to reword that. My husband is blowing his <laughs> nose in the middle of a fucking podcast. <laughs> Are you going to buzz your fucking mouthpiece next? Okay. Quiet. From the from the mezzanine over there. Oh my god, please don't god. sing. He just said he's going to sing. He's a trumpet player. Mother of god. Please don't sing. Could I please leave this part in? <laughs> sure. Seriously, go ahead. He's going to leave it in. Okay? He's leaving that shit in. Well, anyway, do, let, anyway, could she, you, she, she, yeah, do, she crafted do it, it beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hell, though. I don't even remember what I was talking about. Oh, you I'm, said, okay, wait. I know, I got it. I got it. Okay, I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not even worth it. It's just going to stay in the it way it is. It is worth it. It's worth it. Go ahead. No, I was just saying I that. I was very careful. You were very careful with how you constructed the piece and leaving lots of acoustic holes for the violin to sit in and just, I mean, you didn't really have to change much at all. I mean, it, it because you used your imagination, you thought about these things as you were putting it all together. And so that was really, I mean, I was at the premiere and it was fantastic. Yeah. But also, I was terrified. <laughs> I mean, I was absolutely terrified. I mean, when Michael Haithcock, our director of bands at the University of Michigan, asked me to write this piece, I thought, are you joking? Like, what? How? How? So all I could think of, I mean, I had, I had six trumpets, six trombones. I mean, the That's full... Right. The full seven or eight percussionists. I mean, like, I like the full complement of this ensemble. Right. And you had never written your band pieces that way before. No, that's right. And so I remember All, that being another thing that was. That's scary. right. My previous yeah. two band pieces had been reduced forces, very small, like 20 players and like 28 players or something like that. So 
So I was absolutely terrified. So when you're terrified, like leave space, you know, leave, <laughs> leave things open for this instrument to be heard. And it turned out great. And I, I mean, they did this tour of China and they did two performances at the University of Michigan once, uh, I think two before they left and one in Disney Hall in LA when they returned from their That's cool. tour. And you could hear Every note. And on the tour, they had to amplify the violin once because it was like a huge like stadium situation. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, mm-hmm. clear as a bell. Mm-hmm. And I'm proud of that. And I'm also um, a little bit weirded out by it because, you know, our brains do these things that we, we don't realize that they're able to do. And mm-hmm. <laughs> for me, this piece in particular is one of them. Like, uh, if... He's kind like, of a happy surprise. Well, yeah, but also like a, a sheer gratefulness for my training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh-huh. For the teachers I've had who have, have explained this stuff to me and who at the time, evidently, I internalized their, sen- their sentences. I mean, but without them, this thing would have been a mess for sure. So, Yeah. It's like it's like autopilot. Like, um, I don't know. Fifteen years later, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like stuff that sticks with you that you don't realize it sticks with you. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just grateful for that. So we're gonna end with the question that I always end with for every composer who is on this podcast. I'm which frightened. Is, <laughs> I think you'll be. I think you'll be fine. Um, how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue f- for your life? Oh, I love that question. Thank you. Oh my god. Okay, is it is it okay to give a long answer? Absolutely. Okay, it's a little bit of a long answer, but um when I was a kid, I have two older sisters and um they were both taking piano lessons. And I wanted to be like them. And that's really where it started. And then I got competitive. And <laughs> as, as siblings do. Yeah. Yes. As siblings do. As, as we went on and we got older and um, they got more advanced and I got more advanced, I really wanted to win and I wanted to beat them at being good at piano. And then when they faded away and they found other interests at which they are both brilliant – um, I, I got bored. So mm. I started playing my piano music backwards. I started turning it upside down. Um, at, at one point I used to, my piano teacher, we used to have a studio, uh, sort of recital, monthly recital at our retirement home. And at one point my duet partner didn't show up cause he was sick. So I attempted and I think did a good, good job of playing both parts <laughs> and then I turned it over and played it backwards and no one really knew what was <laughs> happening <laughs> except me. So I think I, um, those are, there's a lot of points. It's not just one point. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also a point in, at the beginning of high school when I realized I did not want to be a soloist. When my mother was driving me to a competition in Utah, I had won the state level and we were going to the regional level and I had this this Mendelssohn piece that I was going to play for this competition, and I knew there were nine bars 
at the bottom of page eight. I still remember the page number. Oh, my God. <laughs> that I did not have in my fingers. I knew it. I just knew it. And I asked, I asked my mom to um, turn around. And she said, okay, well, we're going to have to go to a payphone because P.S., payphones in those days, no cell phones. Um, I mean, you have to call your teacher and tell her yourself. So we did. We went to McDonald's, and I got some fries, and I called my teacher and said, I don't have this in my fingers, and I can't come. And she said, okay. And that was the moment that I became a choral accompanist. Mm, okay. Because I knew, I think, somehow, subconsciously, I knew that I would be integral to the performance, but not the sole focus, and not the sole, like, like my entire future depends on these, you know three to 10 minutes on this stage. Yeah. And, um, that was a real pivotal moment for me just to say, I'm not going to be a concert pianist. I'm not going to go to school to study piano. I'm going to do something else. And then being a choral accompanist, I ended up paying my way through college and grad school that way, which was amazing. It, it just informed my music and all these things. So I, I don't think there's any one moment where I decided this was what I was going to do for my life. I think it mm-hmm. is a compilation of many things. But I will also say that when I finished my undergraduate degree, I went to do a master's degree because I didn't want to get an actual job. <laughs> I did not. Yeah. I did not want to go, you know, work at a bank or wait more tables. I had waited plenty of tables, although I did wait more tables during my master's degree. But um yeah, I just I just wanted to stay in school because I love school and I love learning. And lo and behold, as a professor, I'm still in school. <laughs> right. Now I'm about to be yeah, 44 so, and I'm still in school. I love it. So when uh, what was your undergrad degree in? Was it in collaborative piano or piano performance or? I have a bachelor of or arts. Or was it in composition? I have just a, a bachelor of yep, arts. Yep, a bachelor of arts with an emphasis in music. Yeah. Nice, nice syllable. Thank you. Um, Thanks a lot. <laughs> were you composing at the end of your undergrad? Yeah, I was. Yeah. But I will say also that um, what I was mostly doing were arrangements of things for a choral group that was designated to be ambassadors to the university, meaning we performed weekly at places like Jenny Craig's house for okay. money for donors. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of pop music. It was a lot of, you know, traditional um, kind of like hymns and um, acapella-y kind of stuff. But it was a really amazing ear training lab. I mean, right. like I knew all these voices inside and out and I could bring them an arrangement and go home and fix it and come back. So at the same time, man, God, I, I, both my master's degree at the University of Colorado Boulder and my doctorate at the University of Michigan, I cannot believe they accepted me <laughs> to this day. It dumbfounds me and I'm grateful and, and somebody somewhere listening to something heard something they thought was something. Right. And I'm, I'm just... Baffled, I'm literally baffled by it, because I think I had some pretty good chords here and there, a couple mm-hmm. good tunes, 
But man, now being on the other side of the desk and looking and doing admissions now in our school, it's like, oh my God, I would never be accepted today. Holy shit. <laughs> like these kids are amazing. Like they're, they're incredible. Right. So yeah, it's fun. It's fun though. Someone, someone took a chance on you. Many people. And it, and it worked out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I'm grateful for that. And that's why I yeah. always look to, uh, more to, in students in particular, look, look to potential Right, as opposed to what right. what is actually on the page right now. What could it be in the future? That's yeah. right. Because and also um, how willing someone is to be taught. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Teachability is a big thing. I mean, we often have have students come in who are like super super talented, and they don't give any inclination that that they are willing or able or yeah, desired yeah to be taught. <laughs> so yes, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Kristen, this was awesome. Thank you so much for doing this. Before we leave, uh, where can people find you online? They can find me on Twitter at Kristen Custer, K-R-I-S-T-I-N-K-U-S-T-E-R. And also at my website, KristenCuster.com. And also, I'm kind of off Facebook. Really? Yeah. In fact... If you check out New Music Box, I wrote an article called uh, I think it's Turning Turning Away, Turning Back, something like that. Something like it wasn't it wasn't my title. It wasn't my title. But uh, (laughs) Google, you know, Kristen Custer New Music Box and something about turning away, and I just I had to I had to go off Facebook for Mm -hmm. for a while. But I wrote a whole thing about why. Mm -hmm. So check it out. I've been kind of doing that since January. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, yeah. Realistically, it was the aftermath of the election. Oh, that made me go read my article, that made man. Me get That's off exactly it. what it is. And also, I'll tell you this: because I'm doing a Facebook sort of cleanse and hiatus, um, I've been working out a lot, mm-hmm. and my body feels amazing because I, mm-hmm. instead of spending 45 minutes on Facebook in the morning, I'm exercising. Right. There's um, be, just because like being being over here and being kind of isolated, Facebook is a lot of like I want to keep the messenger, and I'm so glad they like took the messenger app outside. It's like messenger.com instead of facebook.com, so you can still like keep the messenger. So I basically like my wife has the password for Facebook. <laughs> and I also on Google Chrome, there's an extension where you can eradicate your news feed. Because for me, that's what I find is the worst part of it is the news feed. You just go on and it's like scroll 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 scroll, just keep going and that's how you waste so much time. What do you mean eradicate so, your news feed? It replaces your news feed with just like an inspirational quote. So when you go on Facebook, the first thing you see is just that quote and you don't see any news feed. So you can see if you have like any notifications or any messages but you don't see anything else. Whoa. You just blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. And that's in Chrome? I will try to find it for you right now. Beginning of White Hurricane. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Well, so and that's me, the thing. That's the you. thing. Like, it was just pissing me off so much, and it was making me feel like shit about everything. So mm-hmm. it was just time. And also, you're right. Like I took I took the app off my phone, 
Facebook is mm-hmm. no longer my phone. So I'm required to go onto my computer and log in and la, 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 la. And I don't even feel like it. And it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. It, for I did, I did a really like extreme um, version of it where I was off – I was off Facebook. I was off Twitter. And I also found a, um, oh, what's it called? It's called uh, Stay Focused, which is another Chrome extension <laughs> that you can you can block yourself from a lot of websites, like time-wasting websites. So I only gave myself a minute, a minute per day to even view like news websites because it was just so like you go on and you just get depressed immediately. And then you're like, what can you do with the rest of the day? Well, this is why you have to pay money for the Washington Post, the New York Times, and that's it. And you're good. Yeah. The if the extension from Chrome is just newsfeed eradicator for Facebook. So you can download that and then stay focused. It's also very good. Amazing. So, but yeah, like Okay. I I was finding that I was reading more. Yep. I was more engaged with my kids. I was right like I, as much as possible trying to write music more, you know. Yeah. It's like That's it's good. it's a good thing. And now that I've done it, I Facebook like it, it's an addiction. You just have to break it. That's right. And now it doesn't really have anything for me anymore. I know. So. I went on this morning and I browsed a little bit. I liked a couple things and I was like, "I am bored." Mhm. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, Andrea, any any final words about about Kristen here? I love this woman. She's the best. <laughs> Could meet a kinder person. No, who is you're also kinder. a wonderful, kinder. wonderful, delightful composer. You're more delightful oh. and better. Let's let's yeah. let's have a fight. You want to fight? <laughs> we had a we had a pretend fight <laughs> earlier fuck today. You. <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> are you talking about? I can't you fucking you. bitch. <laughs> Get out of my fucking house. <laughs> Don't chime in, trumpet player. You tone it down. Oh my God. The trumpet player is going to sing. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com. 